0: الاسلام ديني ومحمدا رسول الله ويقيني ادنو الي ساجدا بجبيني اقبل صلاه وللصواب ديني بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاه والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه اجمعين اما بعد We have learned a lot, alhamdulillah, giving da'wah collectively for the last few decades in this land. And I want to begin by actually talking a little bit about uh, my own experiences. So I grew up uh, in the 80s, and the first exposure I had to quote-unquote da'wah was none other than Ahmad Didat and the Didat videos, which I'm sure many of us in this audience uh, are very familiar with. And... Alhamdulillah, I even met uh, Shaykh Didat a few times and no doubt he was a a type of of influence um, on me. At the same time, watching Shaykh Didat's videos gave us a type of presumption about da'wah that I think needs to be corrected in hindsight. He did a great job, may Allah bless and reward him. But a lot has happened since 1985. And we have been Collectively, giving da'wah in this part of the world for almost a generation now. And the impression that we had, the impression that I had definitely, and I know I speak on behalf of many people, was that all that we needed to do was to have a strong personality, good debate skills, and solid arguments. If you had solid arguments and you could take on these Jimmy Swagarths and all of these other people out there, then the whole world will convert to Islam once they hear of your solid arguments. And if we could only go to a training school by Shaykh Didat and come out mini replicas quoting you know, scripture and whatnot, not, then fi All of mankind would convert. But you see, in my particular case, I actually did go to study at university. You start giving da'wah. And you realize that no one converts. You preach and you teach. You talk and you give lectures. Months, years go by. And the people that you're talking to, by and large, they don't convert because of your da'wah. They don't convert because of your solid arguments. In fact, the people who convert have nothing to do with you. They come because they're interested in something else and they track you down, not the other way around. And they knock doors on your masjid and they say such and such happened, I'm interested in Islam. Now that they're this close, then you come into the picture and you speak to them a week, a month, and then Insha'Allah ta'ala you give them the shahada. But it wasn't your didad arguments that converted them. It wasn't your solid you know, two second clips that you memorized because you attended the Saturday ikna workshop with Sheikh Yasir al-Qadi that had nothing to do with it. Rather, they're already intrigued. They're already curious for something else. And then they come to you with a different mindset. And I think that we need to, it's about time. And again, I mean, uh, this this is the first time I'm also teaching something to this frankness. But I think that it is time that we move beyond the platitudes, we move beyond the cliched responses and got to some real psychological issues of da'wah. Because the fact of the matter, dear Muslims who are attending a da'wah workshop, if solid arguments and good personality were enough to convince the world of the truth of Islam, the Quraysh would have been convinced of the Prophet as soon as the Prophet opened his mouth with the kalima. But was that the case? If all you need was to attend a training workshop and to be spoon-fed the right answer and to have the solid argument, could anybody be better than our Prophet If all you needed was to have a good hujja, Ibrahim had the best hujja, وَحَاجَّهُ قَوْمُهُ And did his people convert after Ibrahim's hujja? It did not happen. And therefore, we need to actually have a very, very frank reorientation about how we're giving da'wah and what is the best mechanism for giving da'wah. And remember that even our Prophet wasallam, it took him 23 years of constant preaching. And even then, it wasn't his arguments that won the Quraysh over at the end of the day. It was the political conquest of Mecca. It was the political conquest of Mecca that eventually caused the leadership of the Quraysh and the people of Mecca en mas warait nasa fi and ironically dear brothers and sisters even at the conquest of Mecca those leaders converted grudgingly they did not do so willingly Abu Sufyan to the very end and those other leaders it wasn't an immediate acceptance and when they converted, they were in a gray area for a while, period of time, as the books of seerah mention. And it took a while, even Allah mentions those who converted that, at that time, وَلَمَّا fi Iman has not yet entered your hearts. So if, converting people and giving da'wah was as easy as memorizing two second responses to the shubuhat, to the arguments that come, then the whole world would have been Muslim for 14 centuries. We need to get rid of this mindset because what happens is, my dear brothers and sisters, when we have this simplistic mindset, what happens is when we start giving da'wah and nothing happens, at the very least, our own gets deflated. Like, what's going on? Why aren't people coming to Islam? I'm saying what I was taught to say. These are the responses I was, I, was, I was told. It will dampen our own enthusiasm, our spirit to give da'wah. So we need to be very, very frank here. Strong arguments by themselves will never win converts. Solid logic in and of itself will never gain hundreds or thousands of people converting to Islam. There is only... A very, very small segment of mankind where intellectual arguments works with them. A very small slither of mankind. And those people are already searching for the truth. They're already looking for answers. And they're typically coming to you, not the other way around. They're already in a mindset where they're wanting to search for the truth. And tell me honestly, what percentage of mankind are that courageous and brave that they're willing to break away from their tradition and they're trying to find the higher values of truth in other traditions. It's a very, very small group of open-minded, intellectually courageous people who are willing to think through everything. We also need to be aware of some of the psychological problems of, uh, giving da'wah to others. I'm gonna mention two or three primary issues that we should all be aware of because we don't want to dampen our own spirit. We don't want to, saghfirullah, even harm our own iman. And I have met people, that they have given da'wah for decades or years and then they get so frustrated that they even just lose track of religiosity. They just stop doing anything because what they thought would be useful, they didn't see the impact of what they thought would be useful. They had a different mindset coming in. So I want us to be aware of some of the psychological issues when we give da'wah. And by the way, we are coming to the 0 don't worry, it's gonna be here. But I find it highly problematic. And if you want me to teach you, I'm not going to just jump to the specific. Because in my humble opinion, that wouldn't be doing the topic justice i would not be doing the topic or you justice by ignoring this uh simplistic mindset so i want us to be aware of certain psychological problems that we as dais face when we're giving dawah to our people the biggest problem that is mentioned in the quran and our psychologists fully understand the technical term for the or the mass term for it is groupthink groupthink this is the biggest problem and it is a technical psychological term groupthink you can call it social conditioning groupthink is when you are born and raised in a group you will think like the group it's very simple right when you're born and raised in a group you will think like the group and you will assume that that's groups, relative orientation, standards, mechanisms, mannerisms, culture, theology, everything that you associate with your own group, that is automatically the default. That is where you begin looking at the whole world through the lens of your own group that you have happened to be born and raised amongst. So, psychologically, this is well known and that's why the Quran mentions every group said the same thing to their prophets. Who are you? Our fathers did this. Our culture did this. Who do you think you guys are? right? And I've given many talks about modernism and progressive Islam and whatnot. And the same issue applies to us having been born and raised in this culture. We absorb the values of this culture. Our second generation, third generation, they absorb the values of the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and they think this is the default. Those of us that have lived through that, we understand and we see these changes going on. So the point is that we need to be cognizant of this issue called groupthink and understand it is very, very, very difficult to persuade someone to break away from the group. And in fact, the fact of the matter at some level we are all guilty of groupthink, even in the most innocent or the most innocuous manifestations. And I'm going to give give you some examples to make us understand. If something as trivial as even accents we find strange, we make fun of, the fact of the matter, and I'm guilty of this as well, we make fun of people's accents who speak English different than us right people in canada about they say right the british and how much we can say about the british accents what not we all find it funny and yet at some level isn't it childish for any one group to find another group's accents funny we all are like you say this you say that words of the same thing right i can give you again cuz i've raised, been raised in a british environment and have many british friends you know what we, we call a stroller for the child they call who knows no What do they call a stroller for the child? That's old British, but modern. Push chair. You're laughing. That's exactly my point. You find it funny. When I said to them, we call it a stroller, what do you think they did? They laughed as well. It's fine. A stroller? Stroll in the park. Stroller? Now, why am I giving these simplistic examples? Every one of us is, quote-unquote, guilty of groupthink here. Like we are tickled, we're amused at something we have never been exposed to. Even though it's as innocuous as a pronunciation or a word in the English language. What we dress as, right? I mean, Westerners find the thobe to be bizarre. That's a dress, that's a skirt, right? And for us, we wear thobes all the time. And in fact, not just this, but even amongst the Muslim culture. And again, don't want to put anybody on the spot or whatnot. I'll tell you my own. Let me just say myself, right? Even the type of thobe you wear. So over here, you wear a thobe that's half sleeve and spotted and whatnot. And you come and you lead the salah. Or I'll lead the salah. Nobody will bat an eyelid. In Arabia, in Saudi, Arabia, when I was there for 10 years, right? That is the thobe you wear when you go to sleep. That's the pajama thobe. And when I first got to Medina, I mean, we don't even, in this country in America, we have no clue, right? When I got to Medina, I would wear that thobe to the, to the masjid until somebody pulled me aside and said, um, why are you wearing this in the masjid? I was like, what do you mean? It's a thobe. I mean, it's an Islamic garb, right? You know, the thobe you're wearing, for example, put you right on the spot there, okay? And most of the thobes that we wear, this is a pajama equivalent in Saudiya. Nobody wears this in public. It's embarrassing to wear in public, right? But over here, you can lead the salah, give the khutbah, and you have honor over here. Oh, you are, mashallah, dressed Islamically. If I wear jeans and this, I can't give the khutbah, they're gonna kick me out. But if I wear a half sleeve thobe, they kick me out in Saudi and not over here. Why am I bringing these examples? If all of us are guilty of these things, do you think when it comes to big issues like theology, we can understand them because of an intellectual argument? I'm trying to express to you how difficult it is for a human being to break away from the construct they happen to be born and raised in. To break away from the social norms, from the values that they happen to be raised in. And I can keep on giving example after example. The most, one of the simplest examples, public displays of affection, PDA, between couples and spouses, and these days between anything else. But anyway, so between couples and spouses, right? In our, mashallah, Muslim, Desi Arab culture, right? You don't do anything. With your spouse in public. You don't even hold a pinky finger like this at this distance. That's considered Aib. That's considered Stakhfirullah toba, Stakhfirullah. Right? You can hold the hand of your best friend, male friend, and jog along the park this way, and nobody would bat an eyelid. Now you do the exact opposite in this culture, correct? In this culture, you can do much more with your significant other and it's considered decent, no problem. Whereas if you hold hands with a guy Well, then people think other things about you, right? Again, all of this is to make us understand, do you really think a two-minute argument to defend our religion, is gonna make sense to somebody born outside of it. We need to get rid of this mindset from our own minds. We need to be more mature about da'wah and understand. You can't just spoon feed somebody in two seconds. It's like trying to explain to somebody your your these uh, you know relatively trivial differences. Try to explain to them in two minutes, it's not gonna work. How do you think you're gonna explain the seerah and the problematic issues of the seerah and morality and culture of the Prophet in a two-minute class? it's simply not going to happen. So the first thing to be aware of is groupthink. The second thing to be aware of is something that psychologists have called in-group bias. In-group bias. In-group bias basically means, and again, we're all guilty of it. These are things, there's nothing wrong with it. As human beings do this. In-group bias, as the term applies, implies, of, uh, per, refers to the fact that you are always biased towards your own group. And you make excuses for your own group. And you look positively at your own group versus those who are outside of it. And again, there's nothing wrong with this. It is human nature. That what your group does, if the same thing were to be done by somebody outside, you would problematize it. But when it's done by your side, your people, your group, in your minds, you find a justification. Right? Now why is this important? Because we are the other when it comes to this society. And things that our religion has done or the Prophet has done or has happened in the Sahaba's time, this is not in-group bias. We have in-group bias when we look at those things. We find an easy justification from our paradigm, it makes sense. But realize, if the same things had happened against us, we would have not found justification for those things. And there's nothing wrong with this. It's human nature. In group bias, you do it. And the point is that whoever you identify with, You will always look at in a more sympathetic light. And whoever you think of as the other, as outside of you, you don't identify it. You will dismiss, you will criticize, you will exaggerate. And I think the most obvious example for this in our times is the issue of terrorism and the tactics of terrorism and the counter tactics of terrorism. This whole debate for the last 15 years, we as the Muslim community have been put in such an awkward position. Because outsiders don't understand what is going on in our side of the world. We don't agree with the tactics of those terrorists, but we understand why what they're doing, they're doing it. But the people outside don't even understand that. And when they do even worse to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Syria, they don't see that they're doing anything wrong. This is called in-group bias when they do Guantanamo when they do invasion when they do if this and that for them oh but they did 9-11 oh but they everything is justified this is in group bias you make a million excuses for your own right and everything that your group does it just falls into place naturally oh but that's we couldn't help it it's self-defense those guided missiles those drones I mean what do you expect us to do Oh, but if they do a drone on us, or if they do more than this, oh ha, ah, that's terrorism. You know, that's you know the, the, the classic issue of defining terrorism, and I've, I have a whole class I teach, uh, used to teach at Rhodes about terrorism and, and whatnot, and we go into academic detail. Uh, and again, let's forget uh, Muslim terrorism, because it gets very awkward <laughs> speaking about that. Let's talk about something everybody else should be aware of: the IRA in the '80s and '90s versus the United Kingdom, the IRA. The Irish Republican Army, right? The Irish Republican Army was uh, a group that is deemed terrorist by the British government. In the 80s and 90s, in the 70s actually, it declared war against the United Kingdom. And their list of grievances went pages and pages and pages, dating back to 1550, no exaggeration. The Irish and the British did not get along, if you don't know, for a long period of time. Colonialism and plundering and raping and pillaging. So there's a long list of grievances that the IRA have. And in, after World War II, the IRA say, enough is enough. We're gonna fight for our freedom. And anyone who's above the age of 35, you guys probably have no clue, there were bombs being set off in London, year after year. Anytime there was a bomb, Muslims didn't even bat an eyelid We know we're not guilty for those bombs Everybody knew Who's doing the bombs in London Who's doing the bombs in Across England Who's doing it IRA Now you ask the IRA And they're like This is justified Because of all that they have done The irony here in America The IRA was a legitimate organization Some of our main congressmen and senators now Were actually members of the IRA and they would raise funds for the IRA and this is well known and they don't even deny it because from their perspective this is legitimate resistance and when the IRA was asked about these terrorism tactics they would always on you know blatant uh, um you know television they would justify say hey you're doing much worse to us this is a war of independence that we are fighting against you guys and um when I took a class with Tony Blair, if you remember my article that I wrote, I actually brought this up with Tony Blair directly, the double standards of the IRA and the quote-unquote you know, Muslim terrorists or Islamic terrorists out there. The point being, if we can understand one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, the simple adage. If we can understand this and we see it constantly, we need to understand whether we like it or not. Some of the tactics that we know in our textbooks, we're looking at it from one side of the aisle, And the other guys are looking at it from the other side of the aisle. You're not going to be able to justify or contextualize. It really depends on who do you sympathize with. What side do you consider yourself to be a part of. If you're Irish, even if you don't agree with the tactics of the IRA, overall you're more sympathetic to them than you are to the other side. Because you know what they've done to your people, right? Right? And so even if you say, oh, they shouldn't have put a bomb in central London, but, and then you go on with that but, right? Whereas the other side, they're not looking at those grievances. And they're like, oh, these people were killed. And you cannot bring the British and the Irish to fully agree on those tactics that happened in the 70s, 80s, and and early 90s, right? It's not gonna happen. If you can't get two people of the same skin color and the same Christian religion to understand do you really think you're gonna get a brown-skinned Muslim from the Middle East or Pakistan and somebody from... To really understand the tactics of 1,400 years ago. We have to be pragmatic and realistic and stop telling ourselves fairy tales. You cannot be taught a two minute response that will solidly refute some of the issues of our seerah against those who criticize it if you can't even have a westerner understand the IRA, do you think they're gonna understand something 1500 years ago in a different place and time and in particular different religion and different system altogether and again, all of this needs to be done because such is life, this is politics that's war, just like the IRA has its views and whatnot, and the other side has its views, that's what happens when you're fighting a battle and in the end of the day like i said it really does depend on which side you're looking at and where your sympathies and loyalties lie our own country the united states of america it justifies everything that it does in the name of tactics it justifies everything is morally correct and we all feel very ambivalent about that because we know it's not correct what do you think most of our people here feel so my point is the reason i began all of this moving on to the issues of, of, of the Prophet and, and the sirah, is that I really want us to understand, to stop being told these fairy tales of, of, of what not, because it's not gonna work. I need to be frank and bluntly honest with you. It is totally impossible to defend each and every accusation against the sirah in two-minute soundbites. Anybody who tells you otherwise, with my utmost respect, is in a fairy tale land. I'm not trying to be too harsh, but this is the reality. It is impossible to be spoon-fed and to be taught to memorize nice little packets of information that you think once you debate with a non-Muslim, no matter who comes your way, now that you've taken Sheikh Yassi Qadi's class or if Ahmed Didat were alive or Zakir Naik tells you chapter number 22, then immediately you're gonna go and khalas, give him the right and knock him out. Life doesn't work that way. And if anybody were to have done that, our Prophet would have been the most successful in that way. My dear Muslim brothers and sisters, there is a reason why the political strength of Islam followed the ideological and theological conversion. If you understand what I'm saying, if you don't, then think about it. There is a reason why the borders of the Muslim world today are essentially the borders of the Umayyad and Abbasid and Ottoman empires. Groupthink. When groupthink is positive, it's great. You want to keep it that way. Excellent. When groupthink is for Allah and His Messenger, Alhamdulillah, it's great. When groupthink is the opposite, it's a problem. It really is a problem. It's a problem for us. It's a problem for our children. It's a problem for da'wah. And by the way, please don't quote me Malaysia and Maldives and whatnot. Please don't say, oh, look at those. Because firstly, they were exceptions. And secondly, do you know how those exceptions occurred? How did Malaysia become a Muslim land? How did the Maldives become a Muslim land without the political dominion of Islam, you know, get what I'm saying here, uh, reaching them? How? Do you know? I'm asking you. Yes. Trading. That's what they teach you in Sunday school. mashallah. Your whole knowledge of Islam comes from Sunday school. Oh, high school Sunday school. MashaAllah, mashallah Okay, alhamdulillah. Excellent. Their rulers converted to Islam. When their rulers converted to Islam, the people were essentially socially forced to follow. Sometimes politically, by the way, but socially forced to follow. Even Malaysia and these other nether regions of the world The conversion, it is, yes, you're technically right. We're only taught, as usual, Sunday school does teach you these these positives that help us. But again, if you listen to my lectures, you realize, and maybe I'm being overly cynical, but my dear brothers and sisters, because of the internet, we don't have the luxury to be in our beautiful bubble anymore. Because of the internet, I am strongly against ignoring the bigger problems out there and just teaching these half-Sunday school myths. Because, maybe because of who I am, but I have experienced too much disenfranchisement from the next generation. I have talked to too many people who have left the faith of our own children. And they say to me, we were taught lies, we were taught truths. It's not correct what we were taught. And I therefore, because of all of this, you will not hear me, maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe you're used to other types of philosophies and all the best for them. But if you want me to teach you as as you have asked me to teach you, you're gonna hear me blunt and raw, this is who I am. It doesn't work, my dear brothers and sisters. Nobody can teach you these little snippets that you will then become super da'wah man. Doesn't work that way. The fact of the matter, da'wah is a very, very, very dry And tough field And most of the people who convert They already are interested in conversion They just need the fine tuning They come to you by and large Or, and we're gonna come to this as well That, uh, well before I get there So let's talk about this So we talked about uh, two issues The third issue here um, uh, The psychological issue And that is What do you And there is no term for it I'm just gonna explain the phenomenon here what is our perception of the seerah versus their perception of the seerah? When I ask the average Muslim, when I talk to the average Muslim and I say to them, describe for me the Prophet ﷺ. Or I ask the average Muslim, tell me your top five incidents from the seerah. What do you think they're thinking about? All of you, you yourselves think about them. Describe the Prophet You're thinking of his mercy, of his smile, of how he was loved to the Sahaba, of, of, of. When you talk about the incidents of the Seerah, you're gonna think about the Ta'if one, how he would stood it. You're gonna think about Makkah and how he forgave. And alhamdulillah for that. That's who we are. But we need to be intelligent enough to understand when we give da'wah to other people. Do you think that is the image they have of the Seerah? See, here's the point. We have a disconnect. Our narrative of the Prophet ﷺ, our image of our Prophet is totally disconnected from their image. Completely disconnected. They have been taught. Now, let's ignore the lies. okay? Let's imagine there's an educated man amongst them. Even though there are usually a lot of lies. You know what, actually these days is half-truths, it's not even lies. Maybe a hundred years ago would have been majority lies. I would say these days, a public awareness has increased to the level that everything they know about our Prophet it's not an outright lie. It is they've chosen this, that, this, that, oh, the massacre of Banu Quraidah, they said, right? Or married to this many women. Or, and they construct an image of a person we don't even recognize. But when you go and look at what made that image, point after point. A lot of times these points are valid, right? It's just a matter of what do you emphasize, how do you construct the image versus how do they construct the image. So when you look at it, it's as if we're talking about two different entirely disconnected characters. Our image of the Prophet versus their image. And for now let's assume their image is based out of Half-truths. Let's say that there's no lies amongst them, which is not rare, neither is it common. But let's just suppose that everything they have, it comes straight from our seerah, straight from Ibn Hisham. They could construct an image that is so radically different from ours and yet still based upon our books and our tradition. So do you really think then that a two second clip out of one of those issues is gonna solve all of the problems? Now they could, we will say, oh their image is distorted. We will say, you've only chosen those aspects. How will they respond to us? What will they say to us? Number one, why do those aspects even exist? Number two, you've also picked and choosed. Exactly. Right, you see, we have to be intellectually honest enough to say this. Right? They will say to us, firstly, even if we chose these ten points, why do these ten points exist? They're problematic. You are telling us he is Rahmat alamin. you are telling us he is Qudwa, you are telling us he is the role model. Well, if he's a role model, Even if it's 10% of his life, explain that 10%. And isn't that a valid understanding from their perspective, right? And then the flip side, we say to them, you're biased. They say back in return, so are you. You've also picked and choosed your issues and you've ignored these ones. So my point with all of this and... Again, maybe because of who I am, but I can't sugarcoat this. I have to be brutally honest with you because I want you to understand da'wah is not so simple. You go knocking on doors, you preach to them, give them a pamphlet, and then they're gonna convert. We've done this, been there, done that. I did this when I was 17 years old in Houston and now I'm in my fort. It doesn't work. And if anybody tells you otherwise, I'm sorry, but they're lying to you or they're mistaken or whatever. Da'wah generally speaking, is a dry field. Now, does that mean we don't do it? No, we're getting there. We still must do it. And we still have to learn these arguments. And we still have to preach and teach them. But I want us to have a better understanding. Because I don't want you to burn out. I don't want you to have unrealistic expectations. When you don't find those expectations, whose iman is gonna suffer? Not theirs. Yours. You're the one that's gonna burn out and say, oh my God, what happened? Why isn't it working? Is it me? Is it this? No, that is human nature. So, when they have constructed this negative image of the Prophet ﷺ, we have such a positive image. The fact of the matter is, listen to this carefully, and I know it's a cliché term, but it is so true. We have completely different paradigms from looking at the seerah. Completely different paradigms. The way we look at the seerah versus the way they look at the sirah, And even if we learn to respond to every one of their negatives, they bring forth 10 negatives because of their paradigm. Once we respond to those 10, they'll bring another 10, and another 10, and another 10. You're gonna go down a rabbit's hole that has no ending to it. And I want us to keep in mind the incident of Isra wal Mi'raj and how it was interpreted by Abu Bakr, and how it was interpreted by the rest of the Quraysh. The incident of Isra wa al-Miraj, we all know what happened. It was bizarre, atypical. It's something that, how can anybody go to Jerusalem and come back? When Abu Bakr heard it, he's coming from one paradigm. So what does he say? Of course it happened. Siddiq. And when everybody else heard it, they rejected it. You cannot intellectually defend and logically rationalize something like this. It's a totally different paradigm. Do you think Abu Bakr al Siddiq's best logical response could have converted anybody? No. It's a totally different paradigm. So, before I get to the actual points of the seerah, again, all of this is preliminary so we understand and contextualize. Our primary goal in da'wah, my dear brothers and sisters, should not be to be able to memorize these two minute sound bites, these three minute clips that we can respond to with these deep seated questions. No! Listen to this carefully. And I apologize if this comes off as too. I don't know. I mean, look, I, I don't know the previous classes you attended, I don't know the previous next you're going to do. I have a very different philosophy when it comes to da'wah. Very different philosophy. And so, take it or leave it. Listen, I have my views. Listen to them. If you disagree with them, no problem. Throw them out the window. And Talha won't send you the PDF. And if you agree with them or benefit, then alhamdulillah. I have a very different view of da'wah overall. In my humble opinion, Dawah is not primarily done via the tongue, via intellectual arguments, via solid logical, rational debate. It doesn't done that way. It's not done that way. I was impacted by didat Zakir Naik is somebody I consider to be a friend. I was with him many, many times. But the brutal fact of the matter is, those tactics did not convert hundreds and thousands of people. That's just the fact what it did was it reaffirmed our iman. We loved didat more than those outside of our faith. It affirmed our iman. It made us strong in our faith. But the fact of the matter is it didn't convert a lot of people. On the contrary, to be brutally honest, that mannerisms actually turned a lot of people off if you knew what was going on back in the 80s or not. So we need to overcome this issue of da'wah being an intellectual exercise, of da'wah being a rational argument of knowing how to respond to these debates. No, on the contrary, conversion to another faith is not usually an intellectual process. It is a psychological one. It is an emotional one. When you convert, it's not generally speaking because of a deep-seated philosophical debate that you had with somebody else. Not at all. Look around you. Who converts in our own community? The number one group of converts are those married to Muslims. That's the number one group. And in the beginning, iman might be weak amongst them. But slowly but surely, when they're exposed to the community, then it will increase. The number two group are those who, they're searching for a higher truth. They are in themselves, they're not satisfied with what's going on in the world. And for example, prisoners is an example of this. Why prisoners? Because they've been cut off from any other source of 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 entertainment, so they're forced between four cells to think of other things. They're forced to reevaluate their their lives. When they're forced to do that, now they're wondering, what am I doing here? What went wrong? Is there a higher power? And so now they're in a different wavelength. And then you obviously have. The few, the very few, who are intellectually brave in their own cultures and communities. They're not satisfied with their religions. They're not satisfied with the status quo. And they're wanting to find the truth. They're the ones going to the internet, searching, what is Buddhism? What is Nirvana? What exactly does this mean? You know, what is the enlightenment? You know, other versions of Christianity. Eventually, they cross other things till they get to Islam. And then something clicks and the fitrah kicks in. Or it might be a psychological issue. Psychological. They meet a Muslim at work. Man, this guy's intriguing, man. He's got this peace coming from him. Where did that come from? This person seems so calm. His manners, this, this akhlaq, the, the, the sakina, the haybah. Or, one of my friends went to a, a tourism as a non Muslim, went to Muslim lands. And he was just impressed at overall the generosity and the karam, and the hospitality. And he's like, why are these people so different from us? Why do these people have, now this is back in the 70s, so much kindness. <laughs> back then, things have changed. But so much kindness. You know? Why are they always inviting a stranger to their house? What, what is this about them? Why do they do this? Oh, this is Allah commanded us. Really? Your God commanded you to treat the stranger with kindness? What happened here? Was this a deep-seated intellectual debate? Were they spoon fed the two second clip in Sheikh Yasir Qadi's Ikna Da'wah seminar? Or was it a raw spiritual psychological exposure? See, this is what Da'wah is. Much more than just that two minute clip. You being your authentic self. You look at the early converts, you look at the Sahaba. Abu Bakr as Siddiq didn't need rational arguments, he knew the Prophet to be true. See, that's what you call Iman. Because of what? The akhlaq the love, the kindness. Much more important than these highfalutin debates and, and whatnot, much more important your impact at the human level, at the individual level, your, the, the, the raw iman that you're exuding. One of the most famous you know, American converts in the 70s, what's his name, man subhanAllah, Jeffrey Lang. Even angels ask the famous one, right? Read his biography. Read his biography. The one he converted, 1978, University of Kansas, right? Professor of mathematics, super smart, whatever. And intellectually, he's at a different level. Spiritually, he's zero. Spiritually, he's empty. And he's wondering, what do I do? What do I do? He goes to the various student organizations on campus. He doesn't like Catholics. Not that doesn't work. And his autobiography says. I walked into the MSA's office, not knowing anything about Islam. He has no idea what Islam is, right? And I spoke to this brother, the big beard terrified me. Even in the 70s, big beards terrified. You know, big beard exudes, mashallah, masculinity and whatnot. So the big beard terrified me. But I asked him what his faith was. And he says, I mean, I don't remember the wording, don't, don't you know, look up, his, he wrote it better than I am saying, but he basically said, the sense of spiritual certainty this young man had, even though I was double his age, I felt jealous. Why can't I have that spiritual certainty? Why can't I feel that way about a higher power, the way this young man does about his God? In fact, if I remember, he didn't even say the response the man gave, which goes back to my point it wasn't the deeply rooted logical philosophical rational argument as much as it was my god this guy he knows the truth and he's happy in it that raw psychological impact of meeting a genuine mu'min that was what sparked his curiosity and said this religion is something different you know i mean and again i have so many stories from my own life experiences meeting all these converts When I was in Medina, one of the most bizarre conversations, bizarre meaning the story-wise, and what a very interesting couple. A French couple, Caucasian French, in their late 60s. And they had converted in the 70s and they were living in Medina. Medina has some really interesting people in it, right? So this is a French couple. And the English was broken and spoke with a strong accent, you know. So they're like, you know, what not. So I was asking him his conversion story. And again, it's the smallest things that spark it off. He told me he was born agnostic, atheist, couldn't care about religion, but he is working in whatever it was, I think, where Jeddah, whatever he was working back in the 70s. No, not Jeddah, sorry, it wasn't Saudi. Another Muslim land, I forgot where it was, right? And, and he said that the Adhan was called and he was shopping in the souq at the time. It wasn't just Because it wasn't the law of the land Remember now It wasn't the law That you had to close the shop It was just the people So the Adhan was called And it was his first week in the land And he saw That's a beautiful Adhan Then everybody around Began shutting the stores One after the other Shutting the stores And closing shop And he looked at the watch It's 4 o'clock He's asking Why are you closing shop It's only 4pm And they said Oh we have to go pray We'll come back in 10 minutes Just wait He said That was the first time Iman entered his heart. Like, what type of religion is this? That people will leave their rizq, leave their money, close their shop, go and pray to their God and come back. He goes, the first time I ever thought of religion when I saw that and I said, if there's any religion true, this is what a religion should be able to do. Right? Again, was it some deep-seated intellectual argument? So again, why am I beginning with all of this? Because frankly, I don't believe that this is the proper way to be given 10 questions and 10 responses and memorize them and go forth and go door to door. No, it doesn't work that way. And if you feel this way, you will be sorely disappointed. Da'wah is primarily through akhlaq and amal and not through preaching, not through your tongue. Da'wah is by your one-on-one interactions with the people. And they'll see something in you that reminds them of a higher purpose, that demonstrates to them that they're empty inside, something's not right. In their own fitra is gonna click then they will come to you with a different paradigm. They're willing to become an Abu Bakr paradigm. That's the point. If they're not on Abu Bakr's paradigm, if they're on Abu Lahab's paradigm, you can answer every question they have. They're gonna bring another 10 questions and you're gonna be back to square one. It's not gonna work that way. This is why for me, that was a very, very different uh, thing. So, as I said, historically speaking, the vast majority of converts that converted across the globe, it was because of groupthink. Your people are converting, you're gonna convert as well. Well, that's not gonna happen by and large in this land unless Allah was a miracle, but that is atypical. It has never happened in human history as far as I know, where people just converted en masse by themselves. Always, it was either the political dominion or their rulers. And essentially, it's, that's another type of political dominion, right? And by the way, this is why I myself I never sugarcoat the political expansion of Islam. It's ludicrous to do so. Listen to my seerah. Listen to my, when I talked about Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu and the wars of expansion. And I go into this detail. Was Islam expanded by the sword? And I'm very frank, this is not the time to go into there. But because of my experiences, I never sugarcoat. I never give you a, a romanticized view. And then the truth is other than that. Because it doesn't work that way. We would not be here today as Muslims if Muhammad ibn Qasim and Ahmad ibn As didn't go and want to conquer Hind and Egypt for reasons that were no threat to Islam. We thank Allah that Ibn Qasim came to our lands. I thank Allah that Islam came through political means. And that's what we, you know, we have to be blunt about. Now, It's not going to happen in this land anytime soon. Which means, the fact of the matter is, conversion will be very, very slow, trickle down, which is what it is happening. And it's going to be at the individual level, which is what it is happening. And it's going to be because of raw actions by and large that's why we need to understand what we need to do when we interact with the broader public we need to bring about that paradigm shift one-on-one not en masse we need to spark something in the other person around us they need to witness something in our own lives whether it is how we treat our family whether it is our sakina whether anything i mean there's a million things that can happen but by and large this is what going to uh, bank on. Now, does that mean that there is no point in bringing up these questions of the seerah and then answering them? Obviously not. Obviously not. We will do that. Don't worry, inshaAllah, we're going to do that. But the point is that we need to be pragmatic. The primary reason for bringing up these problematic issues from the seerah and then teaching you the responses, the primary reason, actually, believe it or not, is not for da'wah to non-Muslims, but to reaffirm the faith of our own Muslim men and women. Because those born and raised in these lands, they have heard the same issues that we're gonna be discussing now. And their iman is not as strong as the iman of some of us born and raised back home because of groupthink, which is a positive thing. Nothing wrong with that, right? The average Muslim who comes from Egypt, from Pakistan, from Timbuktu, when they come here, they've been raised a Muslim. They're strong in their iman. Then they hear these things. Their image of the Prophet ﷺ is so different, they just disconnect from these. <laughs> That's not the Prophet ﷺ I know. It's just disconnected. It doesn't affect him. It's like impervious. But you see, my children and your children, some of you in this audience, you don't have that strong iman that came because of groupthink, that came because of society, that became because you're living in the lands of Islam. Now, you are struggling with this issue. Why did our Prophet kill 750 people at the Banu Qurida? Why did this man who's a role model marry 11 women? Why, why? And your iman, generically speaking, might not be that strong as the iman of your father and mother. And you really do need some validation. Your paradigm is sympathetic to that of Abu Bakr al siddiq but it's not quite at that level. So to answer those people more than to answer outside of our faith, we do need to answer all of these questions one by one. These intellectual arguments come more in handy within the tradition than they do outside of the tradition. Right? And then, yes, there is the rare Odd, exceptional, non-Muslim Definitely atypical Who is already on the fence for whatever reason They've already got to that level for whatever reason And now they just want these last issues answered So then, yes, it will also come in handy But the point is A person who is not sympathetic to the paradigm of Islam Will not be convinced of his paradigms Because of these answers It's not going to happen. The same issue comes for bigger problems. For example, the classic example, and it's a bit of a tangent, but you should be aware of this. Those who don't believe in God, the number one problem, the number one theological problem that non-believers have in God is the existence of evil. Okay? The number one problem. Why do people reject God? There was a tsunami wave that killed that innocent child. How could a God allow pain and suffering? My second cousin died as a child what did he ever do that's the main problem now christians muslims jews anyone who believes in god will have enough answers that satisfies them in their own paradigm correct all of us have enough answers that satisfy us in our own paradigm we have already gotten to that level of iman where once we say insha'Allah in the akhirah this is gonna happen Allah will give shafa'a, reward we say alhamdulillah it works now you tell me those same arguments will they work for the atheist yes or no? no this is what I'm trying to say with these arguments from the seerah that we're gonna present in our next session do you understand what I'm saying here? this is what I'm trying to say when we get to these arguments about the seerah issues right we need to be brave enough to be frank we need to be brave enough to be very clear about this that look The fact of the matter is these arguments will only help when you've already set up the paradigm. You're already sympathetic somewhat. When will you get sympathetic somewhat? Not because of these arguments. These arguments are not going to be the ones that will cause you to come forward. It's going to be something else. What will that something else be? As we said, there are many issues that come, but generally speaking, it is a psychological and spiritual issue, not an intellectual one that causes that conversion to happen. And subhanallah, here at our masjid in epic, subhanallah, I mean, those of you that are coming here, you know regularly. In the last few months, we've had three conversions. You know this. One of our security staff and two of our cleaners. Three people have converted in our own masjid. What was different about them? Do you want to know something? Not one of them was approached intellectually with da'wah. Not one of them was handed a pamphlet. Not one of them was shoved, you know, some material, say, go read this. Not one of them. But what was it? Hmm. Just seeing the community, looking at what a peaceful community this is. What an amazing brotherly, spiritual, sisterly bonds here. They see the realities of what's going on, and they're like, man, this is amazing, I want to be a part of it. And now when they convert, they are already sympathetic to the Abu Bakr paradigm. They're sympathetic to, and so if the non-Muslim comes and says, how could you convert? That is a prophet of war. These same people will defend our Prophet even though they've never been spoon-fed these responses. Do you understand what I'm trying to get at, brothers and sisters, right? Okay. I hope I haven't frightened any of you or like any, I mean, I don't know, maybe Iqna won't invite me ever again. I don't know. It's like, it's like, I mean, I'm just giving you my opinion. And by the way, I could be wrong. You know, I mean, this is my perception, but this is my experience and whatnot. And, 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 and I believe that it's better to be frank than, than to be, you know, uh, in a different manner. In any case, uh, what, I, what I do right now, inshallah, it's 3.20 a few minutes for q five minutes and then we'll give you the first break then come back and then yes we will do the questions that uh, we had from the seerah but after this long introduction so that inshallah we are at least you understand my wavelength that's all at le- I don't know I'm not gonna say we're on the same wavelength maybe Talha is gonna write me off and put a PDF online against me tomorrow but until then inshallah we can do it. any quick questions about what I've just said yes brother in the back go ahead I cannot hear you, brother. You're going to have to raise your hand. Where does the Qur'an fit in this paradigm? Where does the Qur'an fit in this paradigm? So the Qur'an is, of course, the ultimate mu'jizah, the ultimate miracle. And the Qur'an... SubhanAllah, the same thing would apply here, to be honest. If a person has zero intellectual sympathy to change from their own paradigm, it is very possible that even the book of Allah will have minimal impact on him. Like the book of Allah did not immediately impact the Quraysh even though they understood the language and they knew how beautiful it was. But their group think was so strong, right? Walid uh, uh, ibn Uqba, uh, umayyah ibn Khalaf, Abu Jahl, They appreciated the beauty of the Qur'an, but they still rejected it. How much more so when that beauty of Arabic is lost in the English translation. So once again, I would say, this does go back to that paradigm shift. Are these people willing to explore a different paradigm? If they are, the Qur'an can be brought in. Now for some people, the Qur'an will impact them immediately. That's great. And so definitely, uh, the Qur'an is something that you know, is is useful to have. In, in my humble opinion, though, this is my personal opinion. I, be, I believe that the Quran should not be given out en masse to the people. This is my humble opinion. They should only be given at second stage. My father's wanting to say something, so go ahead. Yes, uh, Abi We'll, inshallah, we'll see after the, the class. Where now is the the break? Inshallah, we'll see. So the point being, I, I think that the 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 mass distribution of the Quran just to give it out to people, I personally am against it for multiple reasons. If anything, I think a selection of the Qur'an should be given. A selection of the Qur'an. Not the whole Qur'an. You should give them 10 pages of various belief in God, belief in the Prophet. This is better at an individual level to be given. But still, there should be a paradigm shift. You need to have that open-mindedness to want to be able to to get to that level of paradigm. And Allah Azawajal knows best. Okay? sisters any question from the sisters no question yes go ahead sister so our sister says that our actions will inevitably seem strange to Muslims of course our hijab our rituals Allah says in the Quran when they see you pray they think it's a joke Right? they think it's a joke when you pray it's natural. Like I explained, we find people's accents funny. You don't think they're gonna find our rituals funny? It's the way human beings are. At some level, we need to understand and sympathize and empathize. At the other level, we need to keep on... So, <laughs> this is a deeper topic. Maybe one day we should talk about this. Actually, if you, everyone invite me again, please invite me about the fitra. This is my suggestion to the Iqna organizers. The fitra is what we need to talk about when it comes to da'wah. What we need to do is to tap into their fitra. That's what we need to do. What we need to do, the hidden tool that we have, not the tool, the hidden weapon that we have is the weapon of the fitra. That fitra is what we need to understand. The psychology of the fitra is what we need to be taught in da'wah. Because the fitra is a gift Allah has given us to preach our religion. The other person, the other side, their fitra will be empty. Their fitra will be searching for something. Our goal is to tap into their fitra. That's the goal of da'wah. And all of these stories of spiritual emptiness and conversion and whatnot, essentially what happens is the fitra of the other person recognizes the beauty of Islam. So they might find something funny like our hijab or whatnot, but given enough time, the fitrah can be covered. That's why a kafir is called kafir. Because kufr means to cover up. You all should know this. Kufr means to cover up. What is covered up? The fitrah. Our da'wah is meant to scratch that covering. Our da'wah is meant to uncover the fitrah. If we have the pure fitrah uncovered, and they see the purity of Islam, halas, we've done our job. In fact, that is the paradigm shift. I wish I had said this before, but it was a different topic. I mean, but jazakallah for ans- asking the question. I reiterate, we talked about the paradigm shift. How do we get the paradigm shift? The paradigm shift is to tap into their fitrah. The fitra is our secret weapon that Allah has given us. Everybody has a fitrah. Everybody. Islam and the fitrah are like the opposites of a magnet. They attract one another. Islam and the fitrah, they are like the opposites of the magnet. The problem comes... Their fitrah is covered up. And our Islam is covered up because of how far we are from Islam. Their fitra is covered up because of culture, because of their religion, because our Prophet Wasallam said, every child is born upon the fitra." then what happens? The father and mother... The parents, the culture, يُهَوِّدَانِهِ They make him a Jewish person, Nasrani person, Majusi person. So their fitrah is covered up. A lot of times, our iman is covered up. How will there be that attraction? So, we need to be pure Muslims. That's why I said, this is, I would say 1% of da'wah. But anyway, let's say 10% of da'wah. Okay, all of this intellectual stuff, 1-10% to of da'wah. 90-99% to of da'wah is us essentially exuding raw iman being ourselves, our akhlaq what Islam teaches us to be and something is going to spark in them and that's why every single conversion story amongst non-Muslims is different because the conversion story isn't why they converted the conversion story is when their fitrah discovered Islam, whether it was the clinging of the shops closing because of the adhan or it was watching somebody's sincerity of iman. Whatever it was, these conversion stories aren't why they converted. The conversion stories only tell us when did his fitra see the beauty of Islam for the first time. That's what the conversion story is. So we need to understand, we don't know how much corrupted their fitra is. We don't know what aspect of their fitra will first recognize the truth of Islam. Could be anything. So because of that, we need to be as good Muslims we can, so that something of Islam will appeal to them, because in the end of the day, if their pure fitrah sees the pure Islam, khalas, we've done our job. And the rest is in their hands, right? That's a very good question, sister. I hope that answers it, inshallah. Back to the brothers and Good, brothers, good. Number one issue, not the only thing, number one. How, how do we understand that groupthink is not enough for our own children, you mean? Well, how do we understand this? Because their groupthink is not. So the question is, how come our own children are leaving the faith and not groupthink within our own faith? Because their group is not just the masjid-going Muslims anymore, is it? Right. Their group is the internet. Their group is their agnostic friends. Their group is, is HBO and Bill Maher. Their group is you know, Sam Harrison. Their group is these other people out there. That's their group. Twitter and Facebook is more of their group than the Sunday school. So I would say it's because of groupthink that they are doubting Islam. But their group is not our faith anymore. Their group is those other people out there. And when everybody is saying, these are myths, these are lies, these are fairy tales then he's going to be affected by that. And he'll absorb that groupthink over our groupthink. And that's why, like I said, and again, all of you know this, brothers and sisters, there's a marked difference between a Muslim who comes from a land of Islam and hears these things for the first time versus a Muslim who is born and raised here. Generally speaking, a Muslim who's only been around Muslims, generally speaking, doesn't really listen to these other interpretations of Islam. He just dismisses it because that's not the Islam he recognizes his whole experience of Muslims has been very different right and so when somebody says to him the Banu Quraidah he might even say no no this never happened you're a liar he's never read the seerah right never happened that's not true or he has something else in mind whereas our young minds now by the way this doesn't mean that I'm saying we should all go live in Muslim lands because because of the internet it's all one village now even back home That is, innocence is going, by the way. Anybody who doubts this, I think you need to get a reality check. Even back home, agnosticism and atheism is on the rise and it's all one big village now. But still, there is no denying being raised in a Muslim culture. And that's why, if you listen to my talks, one of the things I always advocate to families, be careful who are your family friends. Be careful who you socialize with be careful who you invite over for dinner and who you ha- whose house you go to for dinner that is our group think your children being raised around practicing muslims is subconsciously going to impact them positively Insha'Allah, ta'ala this is our group think whether it's not intellect is just a matter of their absorbing the lived reality of islam more than just the intellectual argument Bismillah alhamdulillah wa wa salam ala ala alihi wa sahbihi wa ba'd. So now we get to part two, where we mention specific points, and as we said, for the small group of people that actually will be open-minded enough to understand these issues, and they want a rationalization, and they're already sympathetic to that rationalization, this is the group that it is most effective in. Now. Am I saying it's never going to be effective outside? Obviously not There's always exceptions All I'm saying though The paradigm shift Between these two groups of people The Muslim who wants to learn Or the non-Muslim who's open-minded Versus the one who's absorbed in his or her culture what I'm, My point is These types of responses Typically only work in paradigm A Not paradigm B It's not your fault It's not because these arguments are weak Is because human nature is such that Because of what we just said All of these three psychological points And they're more than that That people's minds Their mind frames Their paradigms are set up differently And so no matter what you say It doesn't matter If you're Irish You will sympathize with the IRA Doesn't matter If you're British You're not going to Unless and until you really have a radical paradigm shift So with this caveat in mind I also want to stress And I know all of you know this I know all of you know this but I want to make sure it's made it clear. Be careful, dear Muslims, of ever, ever, ever saying something about our faith because you're embarrassed, you change it. Be careful. You would rather somebody reject the faith because of a truth than you say a falsehood and you lie about the faith. And they say, oh, okay, that's fine. And then they convert, and then A'udhu Billah they find out they've been lied to. Remember, you are a salesperson for the religion. You're not the owner of it. The owner is up there. You do not have the right to change the product, you do not have the right to alter what is being marketed. You can use different tactics, you can use it, but you cannot lie about the product. It's not yours to lie about. You are not the owner. Your job is to convey Allah's job is to judge. If they don't like something about Islam, you may try to rationalize, you may try to explain. you are never, ever allowed, because you're embarrassed, because you're like, "Oh, that's not true. Oh Islam doesn't say that. That's not your job. You, have no, you are lying about Allah as, if you say this. If they bring something from the seerah that you find and he finds problematic, you can't just say, well, that didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, it's not your job to do that. If he or she will reject our Prophet because he or she doesn't understand something from the seerah, you have done nothing wrong. Don't blame yourself. You did nothing wrong. You're preaching the truth. Now, does it mean that you must always bring up everything awkward from the seer. Obviously not. You must preach the truth. You don't always have to preach the whole truth. This is wisdom. You must preach the truth. Whatever you say must be true. This is the principle I live by. Those of you who take advanced classes with me, you know this as well. That, okay, you speak to love, speak to To the people at their level, but at every level, what you say must be factually correct, so that when they go to a higher level, they can look and they can say, "Okay, I see what you were saying. Now I see you're elaborating." There cannot be a conflict. There cannot be a contradiction. Or else you have lied about the religion of Allah And it is not your job to lie about the religion of Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala So with that let us begin um, The organizers uh, email me a list of, of common issues And so I'll go over them I have eight issues in total I combined two of them They gave me nine I combined two of them into one Because it's essentially the same thing And I want this is going to be a joint effort and we'll write it all down together. It's going to be a joint effort because in the end of the day, here's another point, another issue. Not every answer works with every person even if they're open-minded. This is not mathematics. It's an art, not a science. Responding to these arguments is an art, not a science. What do I mean by that? In science, in mathematics, in physics, there's always one correct answer. Generally speaking, Newtonian physics, there's always one correct answer. In art, that's not the case. In the humanities, that is not the case. It's a very different, very different world. The arguments that you need to make are from the humanities, not from the sciences. And what that means is that sometimes... What I might be saying is at a totally different level than the person needs, and somebody comes along, gives a very simple answer, and that answer is much more effective for that person than anything I could have thought of. So there is no one right answer, even when you get to that paradigm. The first the first contradiction not contradiction the first objection or the accusation is that the Prophet they say he copied the message from the previous prophets and previous scriptures. They say he took this from the Old and New Testament. And again, I'll give you three, four, five responses. You'll help me out here. And you can try which one works best in which gathering. There's no no right answer. Of the most obvious responses for this is, in fact, we psychologically say, of course he did. What's wrong with that? He's from the same line of prophets. You just pull the rug out from under them and you say, yes, he did. And that proves he's from the same line of prophets. Rather than taking this as a negative, this is a positive. That a person, now here you bring in the miracle, and this is a miracle by the way, this is clearly a miracle that is mentioned in the Quran. The fact that a person who didn't have an education and could not read and write and was living in a culture far disconnected from the Judeo Christian culture of the time, Is able to bring forth that culture in Arabia in vivid detail is itself a miracle. And the Quran mentions this miracle in no less than three or four verses. Allah mentions this as a miracle. Can anybody quote me any verse about this? Any verse in the Quran? Yes, brother, in the back. Close but no prize. Because I'm talking about a verse that mentions the miracle as being its conformity with previous. As being that it is mentioning the stories of other nations. So what you're talking about is the fact that he was not educated and he came forth with the Qur'an. That is a separate miracle. And that is valid. And we can use that point. But I'm talking about the accusation is not that he was uneducated. The accusation is he's taking from the Judeo-Christian tradition. And the response is Of course he is And that's the exact miracle Not because he took from them But the Judeo-Christian tradition And Islam Comes from the same source So what you say is This is the technical term The common origin theory All three of them Originate from one source Not that he took laterally No The three of them Took from one source Not that there was a lateral You know Taking from the Judeo-Christian The common origin All three Have a common origin Any verse that mentions this Yes Yes so all of the that's one of them that you can say, but there's a more explicit than this. Still not a prize by the way, but at least you got something that we give you the best of all stories. Any other ayah? Where are the Hufad? قَالُوا إِنَّ مَعَلَّمَهُ بَشَرٌ this is about the language not about the stories close but still not it which is that's what he said the brother in the back this is about education he mentioned surah yusuf That is good. You can use that. It doesn't mention stories. But it mentions the Qur'an is Of the verses, you guys aren't mentioning sisters, any attempt? Of the verses is the famous verse, You were not there when Allah spoke to Musa. You were not a witness when? What happened at Tur. Right? Rather this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed to you. Of them is Zakaria. Allah is giving you the story from the private chamber in Masjid al Aqsa that nobody witnessed. And Allah is saying, You were not there when they argued over Maryam. You were not there when they threw lots to see who would take care of Maryam. How did you know this, Ya Rasulullah? Right? How did you know this? And there's a third verse as well. Uh, there's a third verse as well. My mind is very tired. It's been a long day for me. I have two lectures. I have another one in the evening as well. Uh, I have to do online. There's a third verse as well. Uh, مَا كُنْتَ تَعْلَمُهَا أَنْتَ وَلَا قَوْمُكَ مِنْ قَبْلِ هَذَا O oh, Hufaad, you're a hafiz What's before it? مَا كُنْتَ تَعْلَمُهَا أَنْتَ وَلَا قَوْمُكَ مِنْ قَبْلِ هَذَا Louder. تِلْكَ مِنْ أَنْبَاءِ الْغَيْبِ نُ this is from the knowledge of the unseen that we said say to you, Neither you nor your people knew these stories before, because the context is the stories. Allah's talking about the stories of the previous office. Then Allah says, These are the stories we inspire to you. Neither you nor your people knew of them before we gave them Now. The example that I've given in other lectures is as follows. Imagine before the internet era, before the telephone era, imagine a hundred years ago, we discovered a tribe in South America, cut off from all of civilization, living isolated. And there was a wise man amongst them who had recorded the histories of the emperors of Rome in the 7th century talking about the Chinese civilization, talking about the ancient Indus Valley and Harappa and what happened in that time frame. We would say, how did this guy get all of this information? Especially if he's uneducated, especially if he's illiterate. Where did this knowledge come from? His people have no access to all of this. And here is this man, this would be a miracle, the likes of which would drive all of us crazy. We thank Allah, we don't have to deal with such miracles. It's only one such miracle, our Prophet Right, so they say he took from the Judeo-Christian sources psychologically we flip it around we say of course he did that's the whole miracle how could he have done this then you mentioned facts that you should all know there was no Arabic Bible at this time there was no Arabic the first Arabic Bible was written over 100 years after the coming of Islam the Bible was not in Arabic and the Prophet couldn't even forget Arabic I mean forget Hebrew he couldn't even read Arabic there was no rabbinical school in all of Arabia. In Mecca, there was no Christian or Jew that he got it from. And how therefore could he have gotten all of these stories? This is a miracle that the Qur'an itself actually considers to be a miracle. Now, so we we flip it around, we say the common origin theory, and we also say that, and I have mentioned this as well a number of times and, and other things that I've said, there's some very interesting stories That are found in the Quran that were unknown to most Jews and Christians up until recently. Up until recently. And the most interesting one is the story of Jesus and the birds. Any converts here from Christianity? Any converts from Christianity? Any converts? Not a single convert from Christianity in the whole class. Okay. I was going to ask. Where does the story of Jesus and the birds occur in the New Testament? You know Isa ibn Maryam, right? He blew it and it came in the Quran. We all read it, right? I was gonna ask, where is this story found? The response is it's not found anywhere in the New Testament. It doesn't exist in the New Testament. It's not there. And for the longest time Christians were scratching their head making fun of the Quran. What type of what type of tale is this? Where do you get this from? It's not in our scriptures. It's not in the New Testament. No New Testament scripture has the story of Jesus and the birds. 150 years ago, in Egypt, a Bedouin was digging in his backyard or whatever, and in his dig, he came across an ancient mummy. And the mummy was wrapped up uh, in a Christian garb, not the ancient Egyptian garb, and within him were scrolls. And this guy... Uh, sold these scrolls on the black market to get some money, and they were discovered to be the lost infancy gospels of St. Thomas. A pseudo cryptic, one of the gospels that didn't make its way to the canonized New Testament, right? The New Testament has four canonized books the canonization was a process that occurred uh, over the course of after Constantine in the course of 200 years a number of good books have been written about the canonization of the Bible Um, and uh, anyway that's a totally separate tangent altogether but uh, back to my story here only a hundred years ago this story was rediscovered there is an actual story in Christian heritage of Jesus causing clay birds to become alive and the Quran has it 14 centuries ago and western world only discovered it 100 years ago, where did this come from it's a very interesting point the same goes with Judeo, uh, with Jewish horses as Well, there's a lot of stuff about that uh, including Dhul Qarnayn and others that these are وَيَسْأَلُونَكَ and Dhul right? modern Judaism has lost Dhul Qarnayn's story currently we've discovered that there was a group of people that actually had a story very similar to the Qur'an, and the quran has it so again there are a number this is advanced studies and whatnot. and by the way free plug here sorry but the, at the Islamic seminary we're teaching a class on the quran advanced quranic studies and we're doing some of this stuff in that class so inshallah maybe some of you should register for that free plug sorry Iqna, but I just wanted to plug that over there okay now first point was what the issue of foreign sources and whatnot. we say yes that's exactly the point This is the miracle. And there are stories in the Qur'an that are not found in previous. And this in fact proves the validity of Islam. The second thing, the second question that was emailed to me, and by the way, there will be time at the end if there are other questions, you can ask them. The second question, how do you explain, and is it true, that the Prophet ﷺ allowed the companions to raid and loot the caravans? Was raiding something that was allowed did they raid and loot the caravans of Quraysh this is a common accusation that is made by modern critics of Islam what is the response? he raided only the Quraysh okay he wanted to attack the supply lines of Quraysh hmm So the Quraysh were the ones who expelled them and took over their properties. In other words, all these responses are right. We simply say that of course he did. That's what you do when your people kill you, persecute you, torture you. And we give, and here's another point, we learned this from the Sirah, we learned this from the Qur'an, this is common sense as well. Whenever you give da'wah, try to give examples from their culture that they will understand. Don't give examples from foreign or ours or what not, go to their worldview. Talking about groupthink and inbreeding bias and whatnot, you give examples, they will understand. And of the most obvious examples, the founding fathers, did they not raid and loot the king's uh, supply line here? What was the Boston Tea Party? What did they do? What did the founding fathers of this country do? Whose property did they destroy? You see, when you put it in their paradigm, say, well, that's what our founding fathers in Medina did. What's wrong with that? Or uh, you can say World War II and the French resistance, the French resistance against the Germans. All of you should know that Germany conquered France in World War II. Hitler's forces invaded France and conquered France. Hitler ruled over Paris for so many years. And the local Parisians divided into two camps. One group sided with the Nazis. One group went with the Nazis, and the other group went underground and became the Resistance, la Resistance, the Resistance. It was led, of course. By the way, this is one of my infamous tangents. We're going down there, but I'm going to hold myself back. Who was the general that became world famous and eventually became the most hero? Huh? Exactly, Charles de Gaulle, then the airport's named after him became the president, right? That was the general that because of what, just like Eisenhower back then. So Charles de Gaulle, this, your world history class came in handy, talha. good for you, alhamdulillah. So my point is that the resistance, what did the resistance do? Did they throw flowers at the Nazis? What did they do? They attacked the supply lines. That's exactly what they did. They went underground. It's a war. What do you do in war? Simple as that. You don't have to sugarcoat it. Of course they did. What did you expect them to do? That's what exa- if you wanted to win and they won in the end, and because they're winning, we are all here, that's what you're gonna do. That's, everybody does that. No, no problem there. So did the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba raid the caravans of the, 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 the Quraysh? Of course they did. Why is there to be embarrassed about they, the Quraysh did much worse. And this was a defense mechanism against the, uh, uh, the Quraysh. Okay, so that's... Yes, go ahead. So what if they say something like, um, a like person be that kind of, like, political problem? So this notion, this is a very good question. Our sister is saying, isn't Islam meant to be a spiritual religion above these political issues? And the response is, this is a very deep question, much deeper than our time allows. The person who asks you this has betrayed a psyche of modern Western culture that goes back to this notion of render unto Caesars what is cedars, render unto gods what is gods. This is not coming from Judaism, it's not coming from Islam. Is coming from Western culture whose paradigm was Jesus and Jesus by and large did not challenge the Roman Empire, right? So that faction of Christianity views its spiritual leaders as being apolitical and this is a deeper question altogether and therefore when politics and religion were intertwined, for that culture, those were the dark ages. They look down to it. And they were the dark ages. You know what happened Martin Luther comes along and throws the tyranny away, right? So their experience is radically different than our experiences. So when they say unto you, shouldn't religion be spiritual and not political? they are betraying their understanding of religion. And to correct it is a far deeper issue. Because it goes back to groupthink. It goes back to what you're comfortable with, right? But one of the ways we corrected, and I'm very blunt when I speak to them, I say, well, most of Christianity has preached that as an ideal, but they have not only never lived up to it, but in human history, they have been the most colonizing and the most war-filled empire that history has ever seen. It was Christianity that went and colonized the entire world even though they think they're supposed to be... So what good did that do them? On the contrary, it did no good at all. So, you, you are, it's a very valid question and the response once again, it goes back to my paradigms. If in their minds, the ideal prophet is Jesus Christ who's gonna be dragged and, and crucified rather than put up a fight, you're gonna have difficulty defending Moses, Solomon, David, our Prophet ﷺ. If it's an actual Christian, and here's another problem, guys, people, Muslims, Christianity is almost gone from this country. To bring forth didat arguments and and Christian arguments, we are showing we are antiquated. You can't bring David did this and Solomon did this. They don't respect David and Solomon either. They're gone. They don't respect the biblical prophets These are agnostics They're atheists They're saying Your prophet is meant to be an ideal role model You say Solomon killed a million people He's gonna say so what I don't agree with him either No point quoting Solomon and David Doesn't matter They have a different paradigm Even in their secular liberalism Even in their atheism Their Christianity is betrayed When they say A religious person should be spiritual not political Who told you that? Where'd you get it from? If our Prophet were not political, we would not be Muslim right now. Brutally honest. We would not be Muslim right now. If it was just to (laughs) spirit, that's why we're Muslim. Islam, and that's why again, people are gonna say it's a double standard. Of course it is. I mean, yeah, it is. When you do something for the truth, you do it for the truth. When you do it for batil, you do it for batil. There is clearly a quote-unquote double standards. When we went and quote-unquote colonized, because we did that, it was for the betterment of mankind. It is for the betterment of mankind. I th- again, I say this, I thank Allah for Muhammad ibn Qasim. What did Muhammad ibn Qasim do? He colonized us, right? Arabs should thank Allah for Ahmed ibn As. They, we thank Allah for the people who went out and did it. They're, they're gonna say it's a double standard. We say, yeah, there is. I mean, that's what I say. Yeah, there is. It's for the truth now. I'm not suggesting you say that but I have my philosophy of just being brutally honest and say yes if it is for the truth and it is the truth Islam is the truth we don't be wishy-washy about this right so I don't know if I answered your question or confused you or your audience more but like I said sister you have to already be sympathetic otherwise no answer is going to be satisfying so that's the second question okay the third question the third question isn't it obvious, they say, they say, that your prophet was either possessed by the devil, Christians would say, or crazy. Now, you can email me two separate questions, crazy or possessed by the devil. In fact, they're the same thing. If you're a Christian, you'll say devil. If you're an agnostic or atheist, you'll say megalomaniac or crazy. It's the same thing, really. So I put them all together. And they say that the founder of your religion was not a sane person. Now this is a common slur that actually we we have documented it originates in the Crusades just slightly earlier than the Crusades and obviously I mean obviously it's kufr for us but we understand what they're saying. It's we we would say the same thing. When somebody from India 150 years ago claimed to be a prophet, we automatically blame Shaitan and the British. They're the same thing. But anyway, we blame Shaitan and the British, right? Of course we did. Why shouldn't we? That's how we are And it's complete sense So what do you expect another faith Who believes in Jesus to view I mean it's not just our prophet They say the same about this guy in um, Utah um, um, Joseph Smith They say the same thing I mean we expect them to say that Even as we hate it And we know that's kufr What else do you expect them to say That's their religion That this person is not coming from God So what they say is understandable even as we balk at it and hate it and despise it. And it's a common slur that goes back to the very beginnings of uh, Christian-Muslim relations. And the response once again, how do you respond? How do you respond to a person who genuinely believes Jesus to be his Lord and Savior and then he finds islam says jesus is not our lord and savior this person will say this ideology must be coming from the devil do you not understand that he has from his paradigm a watertight argument do you not understand that this is a matter of faith it's as simple as that the fact of the matter is from his perspective how else is he going to justify this it's clearly not coming from god so we have to take a step back and by the way and again you can say all you want oh Islam preaches morality Islam preaches to treat your parents nicely Islam preaches and the hardcore Christian will say but Islam does not preach what? that Jesus is the son of God and that to them is our equivalent of shirk correct? if you come across a Mormon who is not drinking alcohol And he says to you, oh, my Prophet also said don't drink alcohol. Are you gonna say, oh, mashallah, mashallah, great, let's shake hands,' Or are you gonna say, doesn't matter, your Prophet was inspired by the devil. You see, what are you gonna say? So my point is, what else do you expect them to say? That's Christian theology. You're not gonna win them over by anything other than appealing to the fitrah and tawheed. Again, the spiritual paradigm shift. In other words, sorry to be so blunt, there is no answer to this actual point other than theology. La ilaha illallah versus the Trinity. That's the answer here. As long as they believe in the Trinity, there is nothing you can say to them. And I've spoken and debated with plenty of Christians. What else do you expect them to say? Now, speaking with an agnostic who says, Awudu he was crazy, is actually easier. And by the way, most agnostics don't say that. Most modern atheists and all don't say that. Um, they don't have any problem uh, saying that he was a genius in his own way. They have no problem saying that. He was a great leader in his own way, for his own people. I've had agnostics say that to me. I don't have any problem, they would say, acknowledging him to be a great leader for his time. But don't tell me he's a leader for all of mankind because of da-da-da-da. So that's very common to say that. As for the claim that, a'udhu billahi was uh, yani mentally unstable, this is pretty easy to refute. And that is, that no one ever accused him of being mentally unstable he lived a very stable life in every facet from being a leader to being a family man to being a friend you can't just be unstable in one aspect and mentally stable in every other facet of life no one felt he was mentally unstable so and, and to be honest nobody really says this of intelligence I mean as far as I know this is now a gone deal but the issue of the Prophet uh, not being mentally normal this is something very easy to respond to and as for the claim that he was inspired by, by the devil in my humble opinion this is a matter of theology we would expect a person of a Christian background to say this because from their perspective that is what the devil would want somebody to do and the devil will make Islam beautiful by saying certain good things but the most important thing which is Jesus Christ is gonna be absent just like we would say the same to any other tradition that we uh, disagreed with so in my humble opinion I would say this is something there's no point even talking about directly. You got to go indirectly and talk about Tawheed versus Trinity. That's what you need to do. Get to the crux of the matter, which is, is there one God or are there three gods? Is Jesus the Son of God? That's what you need to get it to. Once a person believes there's one God, then the whole issue of the devil inspiring the Prophet is automatically going to be gotten rid of and Allah knows best. So that's number three. And four, I just put it in one number three. Number four in my list, number four, is again one of the most common ones that we get and this is the awkward one of the age of Aisha and the P word you all know the P word no need for me to say it and we all love the process too much to say that word. I don't like using the word it's not dignified but anyway the, the issue of the age of Aisha right? you all know guys everybody knows what we're talking about here you all know the P word as well because I want you to know it in case of actual da'wah yes Anybody that doesn't, doesn't know Talha will tell you <laughs> The guy in the back doesn't know You can tell him later on Inshallah Okay um, And it's not, it's not a problem If you don't know But just find out what it is So that you, when you hear it You know that uh, This is the word Okay How do we respond to this If you know Sira lectures You know that I It's a pet peeve of mine I I cringe When Muslims want to Go back and reinvent history I don't like this at all the claim that Aisha was miraculously 18 mashallah which just so happens to be the legal age of consent in modern America mashallah what a coincidence mashallah I cringe really I cringe and I guarantee you in 20-30 years when the age of consent will be 19 these same people will raise it up by one year and as political correctness goes so too they're gonna rediscover history that's not the way forward That's not the way forward. So, in my humble opinion, when this accusation comes of the Prophetism being this P word, or marrying Aisha, firstly, we have to be fair and acknowledge. This is one of those things where the Abu Bakr paradigm, being sympathetic and finding an excuse, versus the non-Muslim paradigm. Let's be brutally honest here. Maybe some of us would find this in another leader to be something not worthy of emulation. But because of our iman, alhamdulillah because of our iman, we have no problem with it. So when we acknowledge that, we realize some things are not necessarily fully defensible from an intellectual standpoint. But we can try. I'm not saying give up. But I'm saying realize there is a huge bias issue at play here, which is no problem. Alhamdulillah, our iman is so strong. We can, but I say this, and again, I'm sorry dear Muslims if you came to this class thinking that I would just sanitize and romanticize everything, but I'm a pragmatic person. I don't teach fairy tales. I don't give you ideas that are false. If I were to tell you something, To make you feel good now. Then you actually try it in the real world and find out that it never works. Never. I mean never. I think I failed in my job to be your teacher. That's not me. Brutal honesty. You are not going to convince anybody from that paradigm that this is morally acceptable. Brutal honesty. They might excuse it that okay, it was okay for that time and place. They that's the max you can do, but see, we keep on saying he wasn't just meant for that time and place. We keep on saying he was a role model for all of mankind, and that's where even the most open-minded amongst them get stuck. That's where they balk at. So you can go down two or three routes, but in the end of the day, faith has a lot to do with this. You can go down the historical route. What is the historical route? You quote example after example of child marriages. You can do that. Okay? You can quote, and I have uh, from my previous notes, I have a number of them. Uh, Where is it? Isabella, daughter of the King of France, was eight years old when Richard II of England married her. So here we have an eight year old child. Baldwin III, King of Jerusalem. During the Crusades, married the niece of the Byzantine Empire when she was 12 years old. Okay, And I have a whole long list that I can go over, one after the actual authentic references. And then I'll even give you some history for your own information, just FYI. When did this become an issue in America? Why in this country is... Almost every state talking about 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old marriages Up until this decade, by the way Still, up until this decade The age of marriage in many states was 12, 13, 14 Why and when did this change? Believe it or not This marriage law was only codified around 100 years ago in this land When, and I'll tell you some history, just FYI You should all know this stuff Around 100 years ago What year is it now? What year is it? 2019, right? Okay I get loose to track of time sometimes. 2019. Okay, we're in 2019 in Dallas, Texas. Dallas, right? East Plano. East Plano, Okay, yeah. Uh, where was I? 19, 1920. 1920s America. A very famous scandal happened. Very famous. It became the talk of the world or the talk of the, the country. A very, very wealthy multimillionaire, like somebody of the Rockefeller type of not a Rockefeller, but somebody of that social circus in his 50s publicly advertised that he wanted essentially a child bride. Okay, he wanted a young bride. And he's advertised, it was legal. There's no no law against it, right? And you know, young girls across the country are applying because this is multi, mr. Multi-billionaire, whatever, and finally he ends up marrying a 14 or 15-year-old. I forgot now, okay? And he was like 55, 60 years old, and he marries like a 14-year. old It was legal. There are no laws against this at that time. Obviously, it's 1920. I mean, they're no longer in 1820. It's 1920. They can't be that uncivilized. Talk, talk, talk. La la la. Finally, legislation is passed. Legislation across the country that there should be a minimal age. But it's still 1920 and not 2019. So, what age do most states come? 12 13 14 Because it's 1920. Some states 15, very rarely. So the default back then, 100 years ago, was essentially puberty, because 12:13 is when you become puberty, right? 12:13 when you should get married. That's the average age of marriage. So you can go down the historical route. But what is the problem going down the historical route? Who can tell me? I've already betrayed the problem but who can tell me yes go ahead I know you want to raise your hand go ahead exactly so what if it happened a hundred years ago your prophet is not meant to be something of the past that's the whole point you can quote me a million examples you are telling me that he is meant to be not just for Medina of the 7th century and and then they have done this, and I've had this, and maybe you will as well. Would you marry your nine-year-old daughter to a 57-year-old man? And let's be brutally honest. Would you? I wouldn't. I'll be honest with you. I'm not going to in this day and age. It's not going to happen. So hence my point. You can mention this. Now, you can also go down. So this is the historical route. You're going to get to a dead end. There's the other route to go down And that is the biological route Which is also fine You can quote science And it's true, you can Science has documented Ever since people began recording ages And you know, statistics and whatnot, It is a fact That the age of puberty Has gone up In the last 120 years Ever since they began Documenting everything Statistics Body sizes Everything You know like That's what civilization does One of the markers Of a civilization It records its records And people that are not civilized They don't have that civilized There's no records going on Hence why All of our great grandparents Are always born The first of January Of that year Because they didn't Care about the dates and times Anyway Why am I talking about this stuff So the point is that The point is that what Huh Biology Biology tells us, without a doubt, that puberty has risen by around a month every year for the last so many years, right? So, the average age of puberty a hundred years ago was much before now. Therefore, extrapolating back 1,400 years, we say, what's the problem? And, and that's Aisha, when she reached puberty, she reached puberty at the age of nine, by the way, that's the whole point. Why did she wait till nine? Why did the marriage consummate at nine? Because that's when the menses set in, in her case, right? Now, in our time, nine is not the typical age of menses. It's 11, 12, that's the typical age. Nine. It still happens, but it's not the typical age. So the point is, we can go down this route, but once, and, and we can say, and we can contextualize, it varies from culture to culture and time to time and place to place, and that's fine. We can also say, even the worst critic of the Prophet at that time frame did not find it problematic, and that's true. That is absolutely true. That even those who rejected Islam, for them, this was no big deal. It's not something on their register, register as being abnormal or immoral. That is all true. But like I said, at this stage, you're preaching to your own paradigm. So we have to be honest enough to acknowledge that. You know what? I understand you're going to find this problematic. The only thing I go with is, is, this, that is that, look, it was a different time and place. And our religion does not say that this is, needs to be uh, resurrected now. And I say this, that in our modern uh, fiqh, we are allowed to put a higher age limit and leave it at that. There's not much more you can do in this regard. And again, this is my brutal honesty. I mean, if you feel otherwise, then best of luck to you. May Allah make it easier for you. I don't think you can really go beyond either the historical or the contextual and then leave it at that. This either appeals to you or not. And in the end of the day, you either sympathize with this individual and find excuses as we do, or you don't, in which case you're not going to. How else are you gonna rationalise this? Because again, let's be honest here, because they do ask you this question. Would you do it now? Would you? You all know the answer to that. So? Now by the way, one could say, if I found somebody like you know the Prophet system, I would do that, okay? And that's a valid answer, nobody can deny that. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Agreed Agreed, but as I said As I said, at this stage You're preaching to the choir Because they will say He abolished slavery, did he not? Yes? (laughs) That was a trick question (laughs) that was another problem that is not on the thing Uh, I could say let's not talk about that example slavery is tomorrow by the way please everybody come Jonathan Brown's lecture tomorrow for Maghrib and Isha that should be interesting inshallah they would say he abolished not slavery but uh, alcohol right if he could have abolished alcohol which was endemic why couldn't he have also shown us what age group to marry so why are you contextualizing one and not the other and that's what I'm saying you are preaching to the choir at this stage. The only people that will fully be convinced by this are those that are already, and it does work amongst our own youth that are a little bit confusing, and uh, confused, <laughs> maybe they're confusing as well. Uh, it will work for them, no problem. Inshallah, they have some iman, they'll understand, okay, I understand that. But in my humble opinion, somebody who has already rejected is not gonna be convinced by these issues. That's my analysis and Allah knows best, okay. Yes, brother in the back, yes. I, uh, your, your voice is not coming to me sorry I was saying that every also... all of these are valid answers in fact I also add another thing here which I didn't have in my list but I can add it here now you seem to be concerned about her age she was never concerned. She never complained. She lived another 50 years. She never found it problematic. She had nothing but the fondest memories. Are you going to care about her more than she cared about herself? More than her own parents? More than her own culture? And no. So who are you to come and impose your culture right, onto a previous civilization and culture? So we can reverse it around. And again, all of these are valid. I'm not saying they're invalid. I still say you must already have some sympathy to this individual paradigm. Yes, go ahead. a is there to be made about of uh, like, somebody who takes care of, of, the, of the woman? So, the brother is saying, should we bring up gender roles and the role of the husband and wife? Uh, if you want to debate another five hours, yes, you may do that, okay? Because it's a whole different tangent altogether. But yes, it is also true um, that you wanted to make sure that your daughter would marry the most suitable and qualified man. That is her best chance of survival. And who better than the Prophet ﷺ from every aspect. That's why we thank Abu Bakr for his wise decision. We thank the Prophet ﷺ and Aisha. They all got along fine. Of course, that's true. But who's going to believe that? Only those who are already sympathetic to the paradigm. So again, we're kind of going in that infinite loop here. So point number five here. Issue number five. The highly problematic massacre of the Banu Qurayda. This is one of those issues of the seerah where we get a lot of back and forth. The massacre of 700 people from the tribe of Banu Qurayda, Right? And of course, the details are gruesome. Of course they are. You don't kill 700 people except with gruesome details. I mean, that's the reality. Go read our own books. They're not inventing these facts. And again, well, let let me ask you guys. And again, guys, let's be honest here. Everything you say, will it really work on somebody who's already rejected Islam? or will it work to those who already have a soft spot for Islam and just need a little bit of push which is our kids Think this is what I'm asking you all be practical all that you're gonna say is only useful for those who have some iman or are very close to Islam as for those who are looking at it from a different perspective the IRA versus the British right? the French resistance versus the it depends on which side of the aisle you're on we are on the Islam aisle. Alhamdulillah for that. Alhamdulillah. We're on the side of Islam. So everything is justified. It makes complete sense to us. But what do you expect the Bani Israel of our times to look at? What do you expect them to do? I mean, we do the same when... Uh, look, look, guys, let's look at Andalus. Let's look at Andalus when we were expelled from Andalus. Right? Whose side are we on in that battle? who are we sympathetic to the Spanish are saying hey we had to purify our country we had to make sure only us are there we had to expel you guys whose side are we on there on the people who are expelled so let's be fair here and, and understand in the end of the day groupthink, think inbreed biases we have our own paradigm they have their paradigm so I'm already telling you my answer to this there is no answer but anyway let's hear your answer for those who are on the fence those who are already sympathetic to our paradigm. What is our answer? What do we say to the Banu And there are things to be said to those people, no problem. What can be said? Number one, guys, they are a bunch of traitors. I mean, what more do you want? They did the biggest crime known to any political system. No sympathy. What did the, any society? Now we can give you a million examples. What do you do to traitors in your ranks? Every society does this and at the most sensitive time. So why defend it when there is no need to catch, to sugarcoat it. It is what it is. That's exactly what it is. Everybody does this. You summarily execute traitors at times of war. In fact, our Prophet did not do that. He did not summarily execute them. He surrounded them. This is point number two, by the way. This also needs to be said. If you want to talk to somebody within our own paradigm, and they're already sympathetic, in his generosity, he said to them, "You tell me what should I do." And they said, "Choose another judge, not you." You should all know this from the seerah. So he said, "Who do you recommend?" They said, "Saad ibn Abi Waqa." No, I mean, uh, Saad ibn Mu'ad. Sa'ad ibn Mu'ath. Okay? So, who chose their own judge? They did. Not the Prophet. They were the ones who chose their arbitrator. They felt, and Sa'ad and them were close buddies and friends. Sa'ad was their homeboy, mashallah, right? Sa'ad was their guy. Sa'ad was their buddy from back in the day. They felt he's going to take care of us. So, the Prophet didn't pronounce the verdict. This is a very key point. By the way, even if he did, we would have defended it. I have no problem with me, but I'm saying he didn't. In this case, he didn't. He did not pronounce that verdict. It was the people whom they chose. And the Prophet had no say because Sa'ad, the famous story, the famous story that when he came and he was, of course, uh, sick and dying. As you know the story, you should all know the story, he was bleeding to death, and he came on a camel, not on a camel, he came on a donkey, and uh, the Prophet said to the Ansar, stand up to greet your leader, stand up to greet him, show him honor, he's coming in this state, so they all stood up to greet him, Uh, قوموا إلى سيدكم, and uh, the Banu Quraydah were on one side, and the Prophet was on the other side, so he said to the Banu Quraydah, do you agree that you will listen to my verdict without any question, like this is binding on you. And they said, yes. And on the other side was the Prophet ﷺ. And he couldn't say, do you agree that my verdict is going to be binding? He couldn't say that. So he looked down at the Prophet ﷺ and he said, and the other side is also in agreement. Like the adab that he had, right? al Akhar. Is the other side in agreement? And subhanAllah the iman of Sa'ad, right? Like he's looking straight at them and going, Do you agree I'm the judge? Yes. The other side is also in agreement. And the Prophet said, Yes. Then Sa'ad said, In that case, my verdict is as follows. And he gave the verdict. Everyone who is an adult male shall be executed. And the Prophet then said, Your judgment, O Sa'ad, is the judgment of Allah from above the seven heavens, meaning this is what Allah wanted. And you're the one who said it on your tongue, not from me, not from Allah, Allah used you to say this verdict. Your verdict is the verdict from the seven heavens, means you have done right. But who chose Saad? They did. So, and, and by the way, again, the Torah, the Injil, every qanun of the world, it has the same verdict for traitors these were traitors at the most now the response goes oh but not everybody you know uh, agreed to this there's a bunch of of, of of you know teenagers in there and the response is that was the law of the time again you are your group your people your people betrayed and you went with them you could have walked away and I mentioned in my seerah lessons if you listen to it I hope you guys are listening to that seerah and some seerah I mentioned in my seerah three of the yahood were not executed three of them Because they vocally protested and they did not participate and they said this is treachery. This is a key point that you can mention here. Those who did not agree to this and they walked away, they were spared and they were not killed. So the fact that they all agreed to betray Islam at such a sensitive time, they deserved What they did got. And again, I don't have any problem. And if they don't agree, I fully understand. What do you expect? We would not agree on the other side as well. Like I said, Spanish expulsion. And there were debts. And there was persecution. To this day, some Spaniards justify. And to this day, our hearts are with the other side. That is what happens in war. You sympathize with your people. And you don't sympathize with with the other side. So... We say, we can try to contextualize, we can try to do that, and at the end of the day, we say the message needed to be sent. Don't mess with the Muslims. Don't betray the Muslims. You need to send a message that nobody else should do this. And the message was loud and clear. And the message was needed. And I have no problems with that. So that's, I don't have anything else to add. you have anything else to add to this? Yes, go ahead. Yeah I mentioned this The Torah has this as well Yes I mentioned that You can add this Yes mention this as well It's the law of the land Across the world Treachery and treason mm-hmm. Execution And that's why for example If you look at even uh, um, The amount of hatred That they had against uh, John Walker Lind And all of these guys Right uh, You know John Walker Lind And, and, and others of that persuasion uh, and, and anybody who joins, you know, these groups from the, you know, uh, converts who end up joining them or whatnot, look at the, the statements that you find people. And again, look at what's happening. Uh, and again, they use these examples to make them understand. Europeans who joined uh, those groups, the so-called Daesh, most countries have stripped them of their citizenship. And the most famous case is uh, the British girl, Shamina, Shazina, what's her name? Uh, The British girl uh, who has no other nationality other than England, right? And the home office said the fact that she joined that group she 's going to go back to her. she 's her ancestors of Bangla, Bangladeshi, so she, the, uh, the British government says she has to go back there and Bangladesh said she 's never been a Bangladesh Bengali citizen. How can we give her citizenship? So she has been stripped of her citizenship simply because she joined that organization. The hatred, the whole country, the prime minister, uh, everybody is unanimous. We are not going to give her citizenship back, even though from a technical perspective no matter what she has done she is a citizen of that land she was born in go ahead and try her go ahead and execute her she is your citizen but the level of hatred and what not because this happened so you bring up these issues everybody does it it's understood those whom you view as traitors this is their verdict they become citizenless they are completely strapped away look at these um, anyway I don't want to go too explicit because it's problematic giving these examples in a mosque and whoever is going to report to whoever their boss is just i'm giving these examples for i'tibar and not for for what you might call it anyway so these are all you can say about this point number 5 point number 6 what time do you have to finish talha uh, five. 10 minutes left point number 6 and this is the standard canard goes back to the goes back to the crusades and before the crusades and the first person to actually use this in fact was one of the priests of uh, Damascus, who, uh, when Islam came to Damascus, this is in the 8th century, one of the first persons to ever say this was a priest who said, Their prophet, Abu Billah, is a sensual man who has many, many wives. What do you expect a guy who's never touched a woman in his life to say about a prophet? I mean, let's be honest here. This is where it comes from. These people don't even have the halal. So of course they're going to be jealous of what our Prophetism has. What do you expect? And their priests have always said this throughout centuries. That's the reality. What do you expect them to do? And other than the Roman Catholic Church is a whole different point. But the point is that this has been a standard canard that goes back 1,200, 1,300 years, okay? Oh, he has multiple wives. And it is ironic that priests say this because of their own lifestyles, number one. And number two, because as priests, they're supposed to believe in David and Solomon. They're supposed to believe their own prophets had thousands of wives and concubines. Why is it problematic for the Prophet to have 11 or 9 or whatever? But nonetheless, they bring forth uh, uh, this issue. Now, guys... How many of you have actually listened to my Mother of the Believer series? I'm just curious. Less than f- f- 2%, 3%. This is problematic then. Because I'm assuming most of you are still on your Sunday school two, two seconds now sound bites in which you will say, oh, but every marriage had a political goal to it. And if you're on that sound bite, then what I'm about to say is going to be not only over your head, but it will hurt and irritate you. Listen to my mother of the believers, that's all I can say. Listen to my series on the mother of the believers. It's a 2025 20, part series about all of our mothers. I went into a lot of detail. And please do not ever say that, oh, the Prophet only married them for political reasons. Because the minute you do, if they are complete Jahil, they'll be quiet. But then they're gonna go back to their teachers and their mentors. Or the biggest Shaykh of all, Shaykh, Google. And within 10 seconds, they will decimate you and destroy you. And you will be left embarrassed because you made a fool of yourself. Please, educate yourself. Be very careful. If you want to enter the realm of da'wah in modern times, this intellectual da'wah, please make sure you know your stuff. Or else just be quiet and preach Islam through your actions, which is far more easier and far better. Preach Islam through your akhlaq and through your ibadah and through your sakina. If you want to enter this realm of intellectual debates, you had better study and read nonstop and be willing to change a lot of your ideas that you were taught in Sunday school. I don't want to say too much because if you haven't done this, then let me just say it's simply not true. Not true at all that every marriage had a political issue. And I think the only way to do this is really just to say, this is a blessing that Allah gave him and he deserved it. End of story. He is the best human being ever to walk the face of this earth. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed him what he didn't allow anybody else. He deserved it. That's what I believe. And it makes complete sense. I have no problem with that. Now the minute you try to justify, the minute you try to preach something contrary to the truth, and somebody just reads Sahih Bukhari, not even Ibn Hisham just reads the most basic books that we are not taught in Sunday school because again if you listen to my seerah, we are taught to sanitize version of the seerah, we're not taught the raw seerah and again that's another problem altogether but what's wrong with it yes he did, so what Allah tested him in ways that we don't want to be tested and Allah blessed him in ways as well, he deserved it, so what, leave it at that Once you have love for somebody, you'll justify everything. Once you know Allah chose him, yes, Allah says in the Qur'an, this concession to marry multiple women, خالصة لك من دون المؤمنين. It's in the Qur'an. We know what we have made fard for them. Allah is saying, I know what has been made fard for them, and I know what I've allowed for you. Ya Rasulullah, I've allowed for you what I haven't allowed for anybody else. This is in the Qur'an. Why don't we accept Allah's gift to the Prophet Our problem comes, and again, I don't want to say too much because again, this is very, uh, if you haven't done my seerah or my wives of the Mothers of the believers, then this is, this is too much information in two seconds overload. But we have to rethink through how we have constructed the image of our Prophet wasallam. And <laughs> enough said for that. There's nothing to defend here. There's no problem in the first place. That's my point. There's nothing awkward. Allah gifted him. He deserved it. If anybody deserved it, he did. And he deserved it. So I don't even see this as anything worth talking about in the first place. And then we can say, if you want to, we can say, that There are also Benefits that came With all of this Now There is a big difference Between saying The reason he was allowed All of these wives Was because of these Political benefits That's wrong It's just wrong We don't have time To go into why it's wrong Listen to my mothers Or the believers You will see why it's wrong Well we can say Allah gifted him a gift And that gift If anybody deserved it He did And that gift did have some benefits to it of a tangible nature that we can see. And of those benefits, the preservation of his private life, hadith about what he did in his house, We have so much information from all of the mothers that we have. We also have, no doubt about it, in some cases there were alliances with tribes that dict... Not in every case. Maimuna is the obvious example here. But she's one example, right? Jawadia is another example. But these are the exceptions, not every single one. What happened with Jawadia and the freeing of the tribe, but didn't happen with every one of them. But we can use it and say, there were political perks that came. And I think in my humble opinion, definitely the miracle of miracles... Most of us in this audience, we have, alhamdulillah, one wife. Some of us have none. We're struggling to get someone. But may Allah make it easy for those of you that are looking, inshallah. And as all of us who have one wife know, to get the admiration of one woman, hmm? how possible is it? Our brother says 0%. (laughs) I hope your wife's not sitting here, brother. Okay. (laughs) Uh, or you're single, I don't know, he's single? Okay. <laughs> Let's not say 0%. Let's say at least 1%, right? There's something there. To get the admiration of one woman, how difficult is it? It's not easy, right? It's not easy. Wallahi, I say, wallahi, I say in all seriousness, the fact that all of our mothers genuinely admired him, sallallahu alayhi wa genuinely loved him genuinely respected him and we can't even with one woman we can't get to that level right and he had so many wives and all of them had nothing but the utmost admiration that is a miracle Allah it's a miracle that doesn't happen anywhere else anywhere when Allah revealed in the Quran go give them the choice I'll divorce you and give you the world Or stay with me and live difficult lives. How many chose divorce and to be given the world? How many? Zero. Zero. That's the miracle there. Why do we have to be embarrassed about it? What is there to be covering up about? That's the miracle right there. That's exactly the raw iman that our kids need to hear. Don't be embarrassed. Yes, our Prophet went through a lot of difficulty. He lost both parents. He lost uncles and grandfathers. He lost his children, every child he buried. He lost so many people. So what if Allah made the world easy for him in one aspect and gave him loving wives? So what? Why do you have to be embarrassed about that? What is there to be? This is a blessing Allah gifted him. He deserved it if anybody deserved it. So stop getting awkward and embarrassed over something that doesn't need to be embarrassed about. Allah says in the Qur'an, I'm allowing this for you, not for anybody else. This is explicit in the Qur'an. End of story. Now who's gonna understand this? Somebody who already has the open-mindedness and the belief that this person is a great person. We understand somebody outside is gonna say double standards. Of course they're gonna say, we would say the same thing when we look at their cults and their false religions and we say their leader does this and he does that. We would say the same thing to them so let's be honest here when there's a cult and the leader does whatever he does right and the rest of them don't do that we're gonna say the same thing it's all a matter of that inbreed bias versus group thing versus that's human nature so I don't find any problem with this issue and we say that in my humble opinion I would not talk about this issue at all if they bring it up we say well we believe that he was somebody who suffered so much that our Lord gave him this concession and you have to see why We believe this way. By the way, I forgot to mention one point. It's a very important point. I was going to say at the end, but I can say it now. Anytime these issues are raised, all of these seven, eight, nine issues, anytime they're raised, pivot them into why we admire this man and why we believe in the faith. Rather than spending half an hour talking about the wives of the Prophet talking about the Banu Quraidah, waste of time. (laughs) Give the two-second response and then say, but you know what? For me, that's not how I view our Prophet That's not what I think of when I think of him. Do you want to know why? Now you get into the our paradigm, the Abu Bakr model, the Iman model, and you talk about Allah and the Qur'an and the Messenger and all of the positive of Islam and then hope and pray that something you said attaches to his fitrah and he starts getting more curious. That's all you can do. And again, here's another point. I know it's getting almost to the end. Why do Muslims violently defend the honor of the Prophet ﷺ so many times? Why do they get violent when they want to defend in their love? Okay, this is the question Iqna asked me. (laughs) Um, Interesting question, don't you think? You tell me, why do you get violent, guys? How do you respond to this question? Why do people, the Charlie Hebdo case, and this case, and that case... And it's mutawatir across the globe, right? I mean, it's not just a one-off, right? These non-Muslims say, what is it about your prophet that causes your people to go berserk? That's the question they ask. What do you guys say? Yes. This is obviously, it's a valid point. And again, you're preaching to the choir because you call it love. What will they call it? Exactly. Let's be honest here. Stop beating around the bush. You call it love. I call it love. What do they call it? So let's be fair here. But you're right. Excessive love does lead... Now, I would phrase it this way. Excessive love occasionally leads to fanaticism. I say this way. It's the truth. What else do you want to say? Sisters, you've been exceptionally quiet. Huh? They're what? The Muslims are embarrassed? Okay. Okay. Okay so an incompetence and in how to answer this is a true point psychologically you resort to violence when you don't know how to respond intellectually this is a valid point okay what else do we say you're missing actually far bigger points yes people generally get give violent response for things that they value or honor so again the excessive love people easily be, become Violent when uh, They value something excessively So they'll do that Yes That's a very iffy 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 thing Generally speaking Those who end up joining And doing these types of things Are generally educated people Generally speaking Sometimes Maybe in the Charlie Abdu case They weren't But generally speaking They're middle to upper middle class Yes Oh, never, never, ever, ever do that. When's the last time you heard somebody go blow himself up because somebody made fun of the Holocaust? No, that's exactly what I'm saying. I know you're not saying that. I'm saying that. Never give that example. Never. Scrap it from the record. It works against you. They have no problem with you getting offended. They have a problem with you going killing people, which is what they're asking. They don't mind you get offended. You have every right to be offended. They'll get offended if you make fun of their mothers, There's the mothers, They're no problem. They're going to say you have the right to be offended. But if you look around the world, it's not offense. It's violence and killing. It's attacking people. It's bombs. That's the issue. So we how can you not be, like, be angry. You don't have to kill people. How can I be excessive? Whoa, guys, tala. keep him in check, man. Rain him back. Be careful. Make sure his passport's with you. Okay anyway, go ahead, Bismillah. <laughs> excellent. You can bring in statistics, Gallup polls, excellent. The vast majority of Muslims condemn it. There's still a big point to be mentioned, yes. Valid point, but I think in my humble opinion You're missing the big, 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 big point I'll mention it because time is limited Muslims Especially In these lands Are already a disenfranchised minority They already have a lot of political pressure And tension on them So their fuse is already short This isn't a justification It is a contextualization Always say this this is not a justification, it's a contextualization. If an already embattered, an already bitter, an already disenfranchised community that is being legislated against, that is being stereotyped, that is being mocked and ridiculed, is further subjugated to their most sacred icon being ridiculed in this manner, then no justification, but there is a provocation that will result in a backlash. And what you can do, and I've done this actually in public lectures, is to give an example that they can understand. That imagine uh, a racist you know, person or rich you know, uh, capitalist Wall Street banker, racist, well-known, walks into a neighborhood that is of a different skin color than he is you get the point stands on his Rolls Royce and begins insulting with the most vile terms using words that we're not going to mention at all but begin with the letter before M and you mention these uh, things right and he uses these words now what's going to happen we all know is it justified no no But what has he done? He's provoked a group that's already embattered, embittered, already disenfranchised, already so this is what is happening that you have a group politically, media-wise, socially, they're on edge. Now you have somebody come and then provoke them even more. No justification, but there is a context from within which this is coming. It's going to backlash and come back and hit them I always mention this as well it's not a justification it is reality so inshallah with this so that's a very valid point that uh, in Afghanistan something just happened it was yesterday right and Pakistan it happens all the time which I don't know I'm a Pakistani as well I don't understand what our call is what's up with them? I have no clue what's going on there's something in our blood I don't know what it is but I don't understand why would you want to go and blow up another masjid on Jumu'ah because of, it doesn't make any sense to me You know. so the point is that you are absolutely correct that this notion of disenfranchised nonetheless that having been said let me just push back a little and say this did not happen a hundred years ago did it even though Muslim, non-Muslims did make fun of our process 100 years ago. So what has happened in the mindset even in modern day Pakistan? What is going on? I would say it is overall this notion that we are being attacked from all sides. Whether it's true or not, but that's the notion. We're under siege. Everything's happening. And so when this last straw happens, they become so berserk and angry that this does happen. I do think modern politics plays a role in this In the end of the day, all you can say is, sometimes excessive love does lead to excessive fanaticism. And excessive love, when it's kept in check, is something that is healthy. When it's kept in check. You want to love your Prophet more than anything else, so there's nothing wrong with that. It's only excessive love. Anyway, to conclude, I hope I haven't done more damage than good. (laughs) We'll find out, inshallah. But you want me to come, I will not... Sugarcoat. I will preach what I feel is My experiences and what not And I feel that uh, I would do a disservice if I weren't Honest with you, so the last 2-3 hours Have been a dose of My version of honesty, I hope that inshallah There was of some benefit, if not you can blame Talha for inviting me And uh, and coming to Iqna for this Event, I hope that inshallah uh, Any other questions you have, actually I'm in this Community, so inshallah you can come to me There's no time, is there time, I don't know What time is the adhan? Hmm? In, three in 3 minutes go ahead quickly go ahead so the question is about the so called satanic verses uh, and did you listen to my sira lecture on that no you haven't you should listen to that lecture and you will find the answer. We can flip it around and say the fact that Allah defended and the fact that there was a correction given indicates that it's not because even in the verse, Allah will abrogate what comes from the shaytan. So there's something very clear that whatever comes from the shaytan will be abrogated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. With this we really do need to conclude, you know, but sister go I want to make sure one last question to go ahead sister. Last question. Bismillah. So the question is that in a male dominated field, a sister how does she give da'wah? Uh, you know, in this environment. And I go back to my first point. Da'wah is primarily given through your manners and your akhlaq, and not through your speech. So, embody the femininity of Islam through your haya, and show them what it means to be a female Muslima in a male world. Through your gaze, through your modesty, through your dignified interactions, and hope that inshallah ta'ala something clicks in their fitrah. And inshallah, and by the way, I have a close friend of mine, who converted because, or whose wife converted because of this issue of a sister's modesty. So it's not going to be uh, something strange, inshallah. With this, Jazakumullah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. لا يزال الخير حيا لا يزال إن في الدنيا سلاما وظلال أخبر الأيام أنها في وصال قم بنا وانظر لآيات الجمال قم بنا وانظر لآيات الجمال